Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love towards us. Lord, I pray that we would grasp a very small glimpse of what you are calling us into. Amen. The lectionary readings over the next few weeks for the New Testament are all from 1 Thessalonians. And I actually decided that it would be good for us to depart from tracking with the Gospels and just spend the next month or so in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a book that has a lot to say to us in this particular moment. But in order to get into it, it's actually worth giving you all just a couple of minutes of the history behind it, because it will make the letter make more sense. My encouragement to you all, as we go over this over the next month, read First and Second Thessalonians several times. Let them sink into you. Can you imagine if a guy came into town to plant a church and left in less than three weeks? What's the chance that church would actually survive? Paul was with a group of men in Philippi. Luke, Silas or Silvanus, the man who's named at the beginning of Thessalonians, and Timothy. And the four of them are moving into Europe from Turkey to evangelize and plant churches. And they show up in Philippi. And in Philippi, in this confrontation, this weird confrontation in the marketplace, Paul and Silas end up getting arrested. They get illegally beaten by the authorities, and they get thrown in jail. And next morning, when the authorities show up to pull them out of jail to finish this punishment, they discover that it had actually been illegal. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he'd been punished without trial. You could do that to non-citizens in the Roman world, but citizens had to have a trial. And the authorities at this point are scared, because they've actually done something that could actually get them in trouble. And so they basically just drive this crowd out of town. Get rid of the evidence. Get out of here quickly. Paul, Silas, and Timothy leave. But they actually leave Luke behind because they want someone to watch over this fledgling little church in Philippi. Next town on the road is Thessalonica. They come into Thessalonica, and for a few weeks, they're there. Paul goes like he normally does to the synagogue and starts preaching, and some of the Jews convert. A number of the Gentiles that are called God-fearers, people who hadn't fully converted but were listening to the message of the Jews, a number of those Gentiles convert as well. And then in the preaching in the marketplaces, a number of outright pagans convert. A big group starts coming, and this church starts growing, and people in the town start panicking, and Paul gets labeled somebody who stirs up riots. It's hard for us to imagine how that sort of charge could stick, but in an ancient world where there is very little difference between street preaching and riot rousing, you can begin to see how people get agitated when someone comes to town talking about a king other than Caesar. People get agitated when someone comes to town and start talking about a new way of living your life. And so a riot bursts forth in Thessalonica less than three weeks after they got there. And again, they get driven out of town. They go to Berea, the next town on the line. Remember, Luke's still way back in Philippi, that place where Paul got the beating. Less than three weeks later, probably his body's still hurting. They show up in Berea and preach. 
And they get a warm and healthy reception there, people listening to the gospel. But then before you know it, within a couple of weeks, those same people who started the riot in Thessalonica have followed them and started a riot there, driving them again out of town. At this point, Paul realizes that the pressure's all on him as the lead preacher, and that it's safe to lead Silas and Timothy in Berea to shepherd this brand new little church. Luke and Philippi, Silas and Timothy in Berea. But Thessalonica left all by itself. And Paul is hurting physically. He's discouraged, driven from town to town to town, can't stop anywhere long enough to establish the church well. And he shows up in Athens, a very discouraged man. It's interesting, though, because in Athens, he preaches out of that discouragement one of the greatest sermons that we have on record, the sermon at Mars Hill. He doesn't stay in Athens long, but he moves to Corinth. And he told the Corinthians, and it's hard for us to feel what he felt, but he tells the Corinthians that when he arrived, he came amongst them in fear and weakness and trembling. We think of him as this strong man all over the Mediterranean, but he'd been beaten and driven from town to town, illegally jailed, and he gets to Corinth and he's weak, trembling. At this point, he's able to communicate to Timothy, I want you to go back and check on those people in Thessalonica because he's worried about them. He's worried that three weeks with them wasn't enough. They've all fallen away. He's worried that, you know, because he had to flee, the message about him in Thessalonica would be bad. If a guy bounces through town in three weeks, it's easy for his opponents to say he was just in it for the money. He ran as soon as it got tough. You can't trust him. He assumes that the church has failed and he's struggling. But when Timothy trickles down to Corinth to give him the word, what's astounding is he says, no, it didn't fail. In fact, it's thriving. Something's going on there. And you can imagine Paul's joy at this. And so he quickly fires off two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, written within probably a few weeks or a couple of months of each other, to this little fledgling church to encourage them, to strengthen them, to tell them his gratitude for the fact that they made it through this difficult situation, and to correct a few little errors that they actually had going on in their midst. Three weeks wasn't enough to actually cover all the holes. Three weeks wasn't enough to answer every single question. We step into First Thessalonians and we hear Paul's introduction to them, his joy, his big amen to them over the fact that the church has survived. And look again at these verses, hearing it from the context of someone who thought that this church had failed, who had gone through this valley of depression, and who on the other side heard that this work that he did for only a few weeks was actually surviving and bearing fruit. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them of the core things, the things that matter, even as he expresses his joy. You've stuck with faith and hope and love. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. He's reminding them of the fact that what happened in Thessalonica wasn't an accident. It was the grace of God. God loves them, and he chose them. 
He goes on, he says, because our gospel has come to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Reminding them that this wasn't because they were something special or Paul was something special. Reminding them that very simply that what had happened there was a product of the gospel. The Holy Spirit working through the gospel. Something happened in this moment that can only be attributed to God. And then he turns to defend himself a little bit. Something he's going to do throughout this letter, which makes it clear that the opponents of those people in Thessalonica were actually saying you can't trust Paul. He reminds them and says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Remember what we acted like. We weren't that thing that you're hearing from other people. And then he actually reminds them of their response to him, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. They imitated him. They know what his character was like because they started to copy it. He said, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This really is the key in the heart of his thanksgiving. Whatever happened there was so big that all the surrounding towns are beginning to feel the reverberations. It's trickling out. Did y'all hear what happened in Thessalonica? Did you hear it? Did you hear it? Did you hear? Something happened there, and the gossip and the reverberations are going throughout all the surrounding districts as people say, what in the world happened? Y'all remember that moment not long ago when that revival struck Asbury? Do you remember how the word started to trickle out? And there were people who were deeply encouraged by the news and people skeptical and people doubtful. But nobody could ignore it because the word was going out that something was happening. And that's what Paul's saying. Something, you, you imagine his encouragement arrives in Corinth and fear and weakness and trembling. And he says, but you know what? When Timothy came back, he reported that not only are you still strong, but every town in the district is buzzing with the news of you. And then he says, this is the report that they're all talking about. What's the content of this gossip spreading town to town to town? The content. This is what we see in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you how you turn from, to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The report. Everywhere people are saying they've turned away from their gods. Everywhere people are saying they think they're serving the true and living God. And you can imagine people being intrigued or frustrated or very eager. Everywhere people are saying, and the weirdest thing is they're sitting around waiting for this guy to come from heaven who's going to save them from wrath. This is the report that's going around. It's a strange report. And my hope in this introduction is simply to let you feel what's going on in this particular moment. It was actually the word wait waiting for this one who would come from heaven, the word wait that grabbed my attention this week. 
this description of people who've turned from false gods, whatever they were, whether they're literal idols or the gods that we worship that are sort of more metaphorical, pleasure and sex and power and money, the other things humanity worships, they've turned from these false gods and they're laying themselves in service before the true God, offering their very lives, saying, I'll worship you, you can do whatever you want with me. They've turned in that sort of service and they're waiting for this Savior to come. They're waiting for him to deliver them from the wrath that's about to overtake the world. If you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you'll realize that that waiting dominates these letters. These were people who were very expectant that something was about to occur. They saw that the return of Jesus was imminent. Something was coming. They were at the cusp, the, the precipice of human history. Something had happened in the fact that God became man, was crucified and rose again and ascended back to heaven. Something had happened in human history. The whole world had been shaken. And that shaking of the world meant that something else was about to happen. And they're on their edge of their seats, anticipating, anticipating waiting. There's a level of expectancy in this church. Level of expectancy that reveals what they thought of themselves. Because they saw themselves as people who'd been invited into the story that God is writing in humanity, the story that he's writing in the world. They saw themselves invited into this thing that God is playing out in history. And they were living at the very precipice of the greatest movement in God's great story. They were living right on the edge when things were about to change. They were waiting for this moment when this king who'd come and left would come again, and they knew he was about to burst into sight. And when he burst into sight, you better be on his side. So they threw in their lot with this king who was about to come, and they're on the edge of their seats, waiting, waiting. That sense of urgency, the sense of urgency that something was about to shift and change caused weird things to happen within this church. It has this strange backside. There's a number of the people in this church who simply quit their jobs. Like, Jesus is about to come. Everything is going to be remade. What use is making shoes? I'm going to sell it all and go wait. It kind of honestly makes sense that people would have that sort of tension and response in that work. There's others in the church who start freaking out. Aunt Betty just died. Does that mean she's out of luck? These are the sort of questions Paul has to answer with them, because they're struggling with this sense of urgency and expectancy, and it creates all these strange questions in their mind. There's others who start saying, we must have missed it. It's like a bus stop. You get there and it's empty. Is it just about to come or is it just left? And there's some who start saying, we must have missed it. And Paul says, look, this is Second Thessalonians. If someone says that to you, don't believe them. Even if a letter arrives in my name saying it's occurred, don't believe them. Maybe somebody had written a false letter in his name. We don't know. These strange questions bubbling up, but it's all out of the sense of urgency and expectancy. So Paul writes to them to correct some of these things, to answer these questions, to express his joy that they're still there as a church. But in all of this correction and guidance, you know what he never says? Cool down. He never says, tone down that sense of expectancy. 
He never says, guys, put the brakes on. Be a little more calm. Be a little more rational. He never says, back off your expectancy. Let's be temperate and moderate in this. In fact, he praises them for that. He praises them. This really is what I want to grapple with today. It's actually hard to live with that sort of expectancy. It's hard to live with that sense, that tension of waiting. I mean, think about Christmas. How long in advance can you actually get emotionally ramped up and still sustain it till Christmas Day? It is very difficult to live with that sort of on the edge of your chair expectancy for very long. In fact, when you read through the New Testament, you realize that within the span of time that the New Testament is written, there's churches already beginning to cool off. In 2 Peter, Peter has to answer the question, why hasn't he already come? Maybe he's not coming. Maybe his promise is null and void. And Peter answers the question by saying, time doesn't work the same way with God. Days like a thousand years, thousand years like a day. Don't think God operates in the time frame that you think he is. He's delaying because he wants many to come to repentance. He wants his house full before he arrives. But you know what Peter doesn't say? Back off the intensity. He just says, don't think that God is thinking about it the way that you are thinking about it. Both Peter and Paul have to address this question because it's very difficult for us to live with that level of expectancy for more than a minute or two. 2,000 years later, we're basically immune to that sort of expectancy. I mean, so much time has gone by. How in the world can you actually live with the tension and the expectancy that it could be at any minute, at any minute? 2,000 years later, we're basically immune to it. The Thessalonian questions like, should I quit my job? It just seems funny. But it seems funny because we don't have that same tension, almost ready to boil over. The Lord Jesus could come at any minute. Without that expectancy, we become settled. And we become settled, and the church begins to focus on its principles and its institution. Rather than being driven by where we are in the narrative of God's story, God's history, we begin to focus on the abstract principles of our life. The narrative seems to have stalled, and it's stalled for so long that how can you feel your place in God's story? And so you just focus on the principles and the abstractions. Let me explain. If you came to America in the 1770s, you would feel the tension, right? You'd feel the sense that something was about to happen. The air would be charged with expectancy. You're on the verge of something new and something profound. You come now, and we express those things simply by laws, rules, principles, rights. That same tension and expectancy of this new thing coming into being isn't there. Instead, it's simply a place where what's established is something like rule of law and freedom of speech. We end up, because of this long period of waiting, seeing ourselves as a part of the system of Christianity rather than a part of a living and dynamic history the living and dynamic history of a very intense and very personal God who desperately loves humanity, who's doing all sorts of things to bring about recreation and love. We become part of the system rather than part of the story. 
I don't want to get lost here, even though I'd actually like to, because this intrigues me. But it's worth talking for a second more to understand this point. If you were to become a Buddhist or a Stoic or a fishing guide or a chef, a mathematician, a cyclist, if you're going to become something like that, you go learn a set of principles and rules. Here's the truths you need to know and here's the practices you need to embody. You step into a system. If you become a part of a family, something very different happens. It's not that there aren't principles involved in that family, practices, and truths, but you step into living in dynamic relationships with other people. The narrative is driving things rather than the principles. Stepping into a family means stepping into a place where you have to respond to others. And like most families, things are driven by the most important person in the family. Most families have somebody, maybe two people, that everything sort of revolves around, like planets orbiting the sun. It's very different than stepping into a philosophical system or an academic discipline or a sport. Driven by relationship and story, rather than by system and principle. Might strike you as funny, but when Christianity is described in the New Testament, it's in the language of family, or a new kingdom being born, like America in the 1770s. It's not described like an academic discipline, or a philosophical system, or a sport, or something like that. In other words, stepping into living in dynamic relationship intention is part and parcel with Christianity. This is actually what the Thessalonians understood. Paul didn't have time to teach them the abstract principles. Three weeks was not very much time. But you know what they got? They got that they were stepping into a dynamic story where God was the author, where he was doing something right in their midst. They stepped into the story that said human history is a mess. It's a walking disaster, a train wreck, war after war after war. The stuff that bubbles up from our heart is a disaster. We hurt the people we love best. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that, a king... This king comes flying into town. He's the son of God himself. And the king comes flying into town to make war on our adversary. To make war on the one who wants to destroy you. To make war on evil. And miracle of miracles, he wins the victory. He springs the trap. He sets you free. He catches evil and death at their very game. And he renders them powerless. And this king dying in this way to kill death, actually says to you, you know all the junk that you can't forget? It's forgiven by God. And that king in that victory says, I will give you life that you could never purchase for your own, and leaves to go back to his kingdom, to his father, to present his finished work, and to begin to plead for you and me in the presence of the father. But he says, you don't have to wait for me. I'm not abandoning you. I'm going to give you the fullness of my spirit, and I'm going to organize you as my new body. Y'all are my agents. You're my team here on earth, my embassy of my new kingdom, and I'm empowering you and organizing you, and I'm telling you right now, go find more recruits. Start building my kingdom, because I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to destroy everything that's wicked and evil and hurtful. And everyone who's not on my side will be included in that. 
So go rescue the people that you love and bring them into my kingdom and tell them that I'm coming back. The Thessalonians heard the story and they said, this makes more sense than anything that we've ever heard. This actually answers the problems of my heart. And the Thessalonians said, my bets are on that king. I'm throwing my lot in with him. I'm jumping on this train. They grab the hem of his robe and they say, let me go with you. Let me go with you. The Thessalonians hear this and they say very simply, what in the world does worshiping money or sex or a demon have to do with a king who can deliver me? I let it all go. And my life is in the hands of the only living God, the only one who can solve the issues of humanity. It is 9.46. In light of that story, it's actually really startling that the right answer to how to live is not go sell everything. Because the tension, if that story is true, the tension in the expectancy is so high, you would think Paul would actually tell these little churches in these little towns, y'all, liquidate your possessions. Come with me. Let's hit the road. Let's go wait on the mountaintop. Let's go find as many more recruits as we can. Let's just become. But he doesn't say that. Those are the sort of ways that we think we should act in light of those news. His response to this church over and over is so mundane. He looks at them and he says, in light of that news, go back to work. In light of that news, fill your day with prayer. In light of that news, learn to actually rejoice in all circumstances. In light of that news, take care of the people that God's put in front of you. In light of that news, do the little things faithfully. Because if Jesus returns when you're doing those little things, you want to be found doing them faithfully. I'm reminded of the fact that Martin Luther supposedly said when someone said, what would you do if Jesus returns tomorrow? And he said, plant an apple tree. It's hilarious and pointless. No one will be here to harvest it. But it points to a deep truth. The same truth that Jesus articulates over and over and over when he talks about his return, which is be found faithful doing the ordinary things. It's not some big, new, dramatic thing that's called for. It's actually faithfulness in the little things that he calls us to. And this is what Paul's going to tell the Thessalonians over and over and over. Live your life faithfully as if you were doing it for the king of this new kingdom. That really is key. Because most of what we do is actually done for some other reason. It's done for ourselves. Or it's done just because that's just what you have to do. Or it's done because that's how the world goes around. That's how you make money. That's how you live. But the message when this issue is raised in the New Testament is not cool down your expectancy. It's not go do something strange. It's keep the expectancy ramped up by doing the ordinary as if the king would show up at any given moment. Give the time to prayer that you otherwise would give away to some meaningless thing. Give the time to true joy that you otherwise would just let slip away. Give the time to faithfulness. Paul has a habit in his letters of, in his introduction, embedding all of the theology that he's going to work out. It's like in kernel form in those first few verses. He says things to encourage people 
and says, I'm so thankful to God that you're doing X. And then later, he fully develops that same principle into a much bigger and bigger version that actually calls them to a higher and higher standard of the same. He embeds his theology at the very beginning. And right at the very beginning, in verse 3, he talked about remembering them in prayers, remembering very specifically their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. If you were to ask, what does it mean to live faithfully with expectancy? That trio really nails it. Your work of faith. Remember how I said that every family, when you step into a living narrative, revolves around the most important one? In this family, the most important one very clearly is Jesus Christ, the king of the family. And the work of faith honors that, that he is at the very center. Because the work of faith says, I will keep struggling to trust that you are the one I should depend upon, rather than trusting in myself. He turns to the next one, your labor of love. Again, revolving around the one at the center of this family, he says this labor of love, this sense that you keep struggling to figure out a way to love the people around you, no matter how hard it is, because that's the character of this king. And the last one is the steadfastness of hope. And that one's fairly clear, that this is at the heart and soul of living faithfully, because the steadfastness of hope trusts that there is one who is coming who will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If I stay here much longer, I'm going to take way too much time this Sunday. I just looked at my watch. My hope and prayer this morning, and as we step into this book, is that that level of expectancy would get ramped up in us. But that in that level of expectancy, we would say that the right answer is to learn to live faithfully. And when we say, what does it mean to live faithfully? We begin to say living faithfully means the work of faith the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope. Amen.